Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read, produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Mother Knows Best. Insights into Parenthood from Neuroscience, Archaeology, and Social Policy by Michelle Pridmore-Brown from the issue of March 10, 2023. Michelle Pridmore-Brown is a research fellow at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley, and science editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Tucked into a basket made of papyrus. A baby floats unprotected in the reeds of the River Nile. Soon enough, he attracts the attention of a young woman, not his mother. There's nothing intuitively unlikely about this. Babies are honed by eons of evolution to be sensory traps to attract unrelated adults. Their soft fonatels smell like perfume. They have extra subcutaneous fat, flailing limbs and smiles with the power to enchant, even though it's just gas. When the infant who will become Moses meets the gaze of Pharaoh's daughter, she is caught. Likewise, in George Eliot's Silas Marner, a golden-haired child named Epi rests an aging miser's attention away from his coins. In Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, too, when the orphan Pip encounters the terrifying convict Magwitch in a Kentish graveyard, his helpless vulnerability and fat cheeks atop a malnourished body affect the latter's transformation. What storytellers, mythmakers, and parents have long known, scientists are now uncovering through brain imaging, endocrinology, primatology, epigenetics, and archaeology. The adult brain carries physical traces of how babies manufacture care, how they can thaw the frozen heart of a man like Magwitch, by co-opting his neuro-networks of social perception and reward. Researchers interested in our evolutionary backstory argue that the dynamics of how we are wired to be responsive to babies and children are part of other features that make us human. The slow-growing brains, long childhoods, intricate sociality, and postmenopausal lives that enable the business of caring for the young to extend long beyond the ability to reproduce. We're odd apes. Born too early, we remain helpless for years. 
and where other infant apes cling to their mothers 24-7 for dear life, lest they be killed by roving males or rival females, we find ourselves passed around with remarkable unconcern by relatives and strangers alike. Many lines of current research lead through the consolidating work of Sarah Hurdy, a primatologist and anthropologist who began to scrutinize the habits of Langer monkeys, great apes, and humans in the 1970s. Resisting narratives of male-on-male -male competition, she argued that cooperative care of the young and helpers at the nest enabled our ancestors to become us. A mother who could corral help increased her child's chances of survival. Features and traits that elicited positive responsiveness from unrelated others helped as well. Such mothers and babies, she surmised in Mother and Others, published in 2009, must have been selected for during our Pleistocene past. She and some of her colleagues, including the anthropologist Kristen Hawkes, went so far as to say that without alloparents, the others of Hurdy's title, there'd be no humans at all. Hawks noted that human apes are without full maternal engagement as a birthright. Hurdy went further. When resources are scarce and others aren't available to help, or a mother's mothering isn't valued, then infanticide or abandonment can happen. It was not a popular observation, but her examples, historical and archaeological, were hard to gainsay. Baptismal records show that more than 12% of infants were abandoned in 16th and 17th century Florence, reaching a high of 43% in the 1840s. A spectrum of maternal ambivalence is hardwired into our species, she concluded, with environmental and social cues, such as the presence of committed others, shaping attachment and so-called maternal instinct. Mothers are not passive vessels, as biblical and early Darwinian interpretations had it, but conflicted strategic players in their own lives and in the evolutionary long game. The American science writer Chelsea Conaboy was motivated to write Mother Brain, separating myth from biology, the science of the parental brain, when she became a mother and mother instinct didn't show up as expected. Outside her window, a mother robin gathered twigs and engaged in alert, selfless, patient devotion to her chicks. Conaboy felt herself to be bereft of the bird's natural calm and clarity. Even as the orbit of her life shrank to little more than her baby's bassinet, she felt overwhelmed, experiencing a disorienting self-untying. And yet, she loved her baby. She had a committed co-parent and resources. In the labs of a new generation of neuroscientists focused on the parental transition, she found insight into her malaise. We hurt ourselves, she writes, if we deny the voice of nature in all its messiness. Nature matters, as culture does, and what we experience is their interaction. Understanding that interaction, seeing its neural footprint, can be liberating. Neuroscience is akin to a four-year-old in its development, she acknowledges, but its excitable currents and color-coded maps of brain activity are already helping to fill the gaps in the story told by Hurdy about maternal ambivalence. Scans reveal what Conaboy's sensation of being untied looks like. The maternal brain, she discovers, changes every bit as much as it does in adolescence. Some areas thicken or shapeshift, others shrink. 
new highways are formed and others pruned. And the overall connectivity between regions changes. The adult brain is being retrofitted to the needs of an imperious bundle of flesh. The baby is like an air traffic controller, not only in directing these brain changes through chemical messaging, but also more literally when it directs its mother and others to coo on cue, for instance, or to play peekaboo. Its crowning achievement is making such activities feel pleasurable. The long, drawn-out syllables emitted by captured adults, cooing, have a purpose. They enable the baby to wire up its brain for language. And peekaboo, say, lets it explore causality and object permanence, and figure out how to make adult brains even more responsive. Conaboy carefully explains how the combination of hormone dumps, starting in pregnancy, and sensory overwhelm, the baby's doping ability, activate regions of the adult brain. The amygdala operates like a science detector. If the radar for the infant's cues is turned up or down, or is just not well-tuned, then mood disorders such as bipolar and depression, or generalized anxiety, are more likely. The hormone cortisol, which skyrockets in pregnancy and right after, should be understood as a chemical change agent. It triggers the mother's brain to pay attention and to fret enough to update. It is the chemical that shapes us into parents. Conaboy makes much of how easily the maternal brain can exist on the edge of madness during all this rearranging. Up to 20% of new mothers in the U.S., more in Chile, less in Singapore, suffer from mood disorders and other mental illness, almost half of these for the first time. The steeper the socioeconomic ladder, the higher the percentages, it would seem. In the U.S., up to 10% of new fathers also suffer from mental illness, especially if they are the primary caregiver and isolated. There are obviously differences in how mental illness is measured in different places, but two things seem true. Neural precarity is built into the parental transition, and culture can mitigate or amplify that precarity through societal supports. If parents are embedded in a supportive community, they are more likely to weather the transition. As for other mental illnesses, such as OCD, it may be an offshoot of the obsessive checking on babies that parents do, a form of parental vigilance gone awry. The feeling that one might harm the baby is not necessarily a sign of impending mental doom, but quite normal. It can be alleviated, explains Conaboy, by being close to the baby. Proximity strengthens connectivity between the salience network and what's called the dopamine-driven reward system, the system that enables us to experience a dopamine hit when the baby locates its toes and chortles, or just coos back at us. This is designed to make caring for the baby addictive. It also enables us to feel ourselves into the baby's emotions and experience them as our own, a kind of enmeshment or possession that is deemed healthy, even beautiful early on, but maladaptive later. Too much synchrony between mother and infant may not, in fact, be the goal of well-adapted motherhood. Allostasis, self-regulation, is what one researcher, Shir Atzil, also a mother of three, now identifies as adaptive. After the rearranging of the self, the payoff for mothers and others is that, if all goes well, they may develop more empathetic, emotionally regulated, and cooperatively flexible brains. The baby may extend, even as it curtails, 
the mother's ability to function in the social world. She may become more emotionally nimble, learning to pay attention but not obsess, be smoothly responsive but not jumpily so, corral help, then let go of some degree of vigilance. Neural network states that to neuroscientists look more disturbed are a sign that a parent is becoming more dynamically balanced. One practical way of inducing such states appears to be parental leave, which a recent study from Stockholm shows is protective against mental health issues in the postpartum period and later in life. In Wichita, Kansas, black doulas who helped black mothers navigate pregnancy and the early postpartum period were effective in countering black infant mortality, which is three times higher than the national average, as well as inordinate suffering in black mothers. Social ties, or interventions that mimic them, have biological consequences. Similarly, if a baby can get enough skin-to-skin -skin contact with a father or two, then it can reliably decrease their testosterone levels. This shift can be thought of as nudging fathers away from the peacocking end of the male behavioral repertoire towards the nurturing end. In a father who is a primary caregiver, says Conaboy, the amygdala activation in his brain will be comparable to that of a mother, as will its connectivity to a region thought to correspond to better detection of the baby's cues and, intriguingly, to social cues in general. Responsiveness begets responsiveness, and over time, the male, in theory, it's a generalization, sample sizes are still small, becomes a more empathetic male who can feel himself into other people's shoes, not just the baby's. The male is turned into a soother, and the world tilts a little towards valuing care. What Makes a Person? Secrets of Our First Thousand Days is by Mark Hansen and Lucy Green of the University of Southampton. Researchers focused on developmental pathways to health or disease. They write in a bracing manner that we can do right by future generations by putting to work the insights of another young field, epigenetics. Like Conaboy, they think knowing the science can pay societal dividends. Epigenetics makes clear our species-wide plasticity. We are gestated in an environment and social soup that influences the expression of genes. We contain multitudes. Epigenetic tweaks can turn us into, say, a beloved creative genius who lives to be 90, as opposed to a homeless schizophrenic who dies at 30, or into a resplendent, if chain-smoking, Simone de Beauvoir, rather than an asthmatic shut-in who only dreams of being Simone de Beauvoir. In terms of health and disease, the womb's influence is long. The environments of our infancy and toddlerhood can have deadly after-effects, too, if we were exposed to toxins, say, or did not get the sort of entourage that would enable us to wire up the social parts of our brains. Our first thousand days after conception will make us profoundly unequal in terms of our health spans and lifespans. This bio-inequality becomes especially apparent in midlife, when some of us are still youthful and others are debilitated by chronic illness. As adults, we have little control over our destiny, Hansen and Green point out. If we were gestated in a place where scarcity prevailed, then our kidneys and heart will have fewer cells, and we will be mismatched to environments featuring supersized bags of crisps. We will be prone to obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, and heart disease, 
conditions that have been increasing. If our mothers immigrated from elsewhere, then we may be mismatched to our environments in more subtle ways. If they fell prey to the flu or COVID, then we may have a higher risk of mental illness. And if they consumed nothing but crisps, then this adversely shaped the way our cells grew and the proteins they produced. Add to this being gestated near a toxic dump or next to a highway, and it becomes clear that socioeconomic inequality is written into our very cells. Epigenetic marks may be a way of reading those damages. Blaming mothers for what ails us is an age-old cultural reflex, but one blessing, the authors quip, is that blame can now be more distributed. The mutation-filled sperm of old fathers, or of young fathers with allegedly toxic preconception lifestyles, wreaks its own set of damages. But before we rush to conjure up an epigenetic scorecard against both parents, we should consider that determining causality is always tricky. This is especially the case with epigenetics, which explores a host of small effects that then have to add up to something that, given interaction effects, may be inordinately hard to measure. Alcoholism in the mother is certainly detrimental to the fetus. And the DES prescribed in the 1960s to pregnant women did lead to limb and other abnormalities in their babies. But the toxins of one era, cocaine, smoking, can sometimes be revealed by later studies as not so bad. Hansen and Green's goal here is laudable. They want to spell out damages in order to advocate for preconception education, cleaner air, better food, fewer toxins, and social supports for all babies. They want to level the playing field among babies. A curious strand in their book, however, like Hurdy's early critics in the 20th century, they are averse to thinking about evolutionarily honed conflicts of interest between the mother and her fetus or baby, even though they acknowledge that pregnancy disorders, such as preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, are expressions of that conflict. These disorders exist because the mother's metabolism is squeezed to near death to satisfy the baby's needs. Of such conflicts of interest, they write that, this is a very harsh and simplistic way of looking at development with which many of us disagree. They prefer to speak of maternal or paternal sacrifice as a gift or as a fantastic story of care or unconscious love communicated across inherited time. Dare one say this seems a lot like the old stories about unconditional maternal devotion as God-given nature? The biological anthropologist Brenna Hassett in Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood, cheerfully embraces the evolutionary conflicts of interest that Hansen and Green find so unsightly. A digger from a rising generation of female researchers inspired by Hurdy, Hassett specializes in skeletons from the Paleolithic and Neolithic periods. Bones reveal that anxious parenting is anything but new. Diggers routinely find the ephemera of anxious parenting tools for bathing, feeding, and swaddling babies, and for playing with them. Digging has also revealed just how popular, on every continent inhabited by humans, one particular parenting practice was, starting about 13,000 years ago. It consists of modifying baby skulls into socially pleasing shapes, a more time-consuming version, it would seem, of plating and ribbons. As she puts it, humans embodied social capital in their children 
through their labor in creating pointy heads. Hassett asks broad comparative questions in the manner of Herdy. What is our weird human childhood for? We have big babies for the size of mothers compared to other species, and our babies are 15% lard, which is not just about generating attractive plumpness, but about fueling our expansive brains. During pregnancy, the placenta has far greater control over the mother than in any other placental species, and the sperm's imperious instructions, grow the baby at all costs, can become deadly to the mother. The mother also has a 1% chance of dying in childbirth and the baby 2% in most contexts because babies' brains, although small for their final size, are too big for their mother's size. After birth, during lactation, the baby will strip mine the mother's body of minerals to secure extra base minerals to speed its growth. The baby cannibalizes its mother's tissues, time, sleep, and resources she may well lose a tooth per baby. As if that weren't enough, fetal cells remain in her circulation to wreak havoc years later in autoimmune diseases. Hassett has a young child, despite her knowledge of the sabotage. Other odd features of our species. The most reliable helpers at the nest in hunter-gatherer contexts have been found to be maternal grandmothers, not fathers whose paternal behavior is reliably unpredictable. And whereas human mothers typically wean their children at age two or so, other apes wean theirs between ages five and seven, shortly before they get their first molar and start careening into adolescence. Their brains have reached their full size at this point, or close to it, whereas ours are nowhere near full-grown. The first molar often has an outsized importance in the narratives of archaeologists. Hassett has been involved in resolving debates around our emergence as a species and teeth gave the game away. The key evidence is the number of growth lines on that first molar. Many lines equates to the usual patterns of fast ape growth. Fewer suggest an intermediary species, and fewer still are an indicator of human-like slow growth, and of everything that goes with that slow growth, helpers, hypersociality, neuroticism. On that basis, Hassett and her colleagues estimate our species emerged 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. The relatively quiescent period of our middle childhood, 7 to 12, is a timeout carved into ape growth patterns in which human children internalize the rules of their cultures and learn how to play in ever more sophisticated ways. Cut to Hassad excavating at Bashir Hoyuk, a site in southeastern Turkey that is more than 5,000 years old. The earliest game pieces were discovered here, on the northern fringes of Mesopotamia, made from carved and painted stones. There is also evidence, in cave drawings, of carrying play with pets, such as monkeys. Hassett's key point is that there was a mind-blowing explosion of things at this 5,000-year mark. She generally has a breezy, even jaunty style, but here she becomes impassioned. The bodies of the dead tell the story of what writes our modern world. Digging allows her to see how children become unequal, no longer just for the bio reasons described by Hansen and Green, or because of their varying aptitude for eliciting positive responsiveness, but for strictly material reasons. Things that could be turned into material goods could now be turned into advantages for certain children and not others. This divided children into haves and have-nots.
Some children's graves at Bashar Huyuk are full of ceramic and metal goods, including weapons they can't hope to wield. Hassett was involved in accounting for a grave that included eight children as part of such goods. Their bone fragments show that at least some of them were violently killed. These children, she writes, are probably the earliest example of human sacrifice. The privileged honorees of that sacrifice, two 12-year-olds to whom the grave belongs. Another example of what being a have-not could mean, this time dated to 2,000 years ago, was found in the salt mining community of Hallstatt, Austria, where the bones of children show dramatic arthritic degeneration from years of carrying blocks of salt on their heads before they expired to tell the tale of their suffering through their remains. In short, the past half-dozen millennia constitute the site of a new kind of material investment, which marked the dawn of a new form of childhood. Things, then money and education, became steps on a ladder, and inherited wealth mattered. Hassett and her colleagues estimate that the five-millennia mark was also when our adolescents started to expand or contract in accordance with how much capital our caregivers were willing and able to put down on our behalf. Just as some parents can now buy better nourishment for their children, which may translate into greater height and healthier lives and increased status, some can now add to that another advantage, a long adolescence. In many parts of the world, a girl might leave school and childhood at the age of 11, whereas Hassett herself, as she is quick to point out, was accorded 15 extra years thanks to investments made by others. All children need more equal access to the things that matter. The U.S., with its emphasis on bootstrapping individualism, depends on maternal instinct as hardwired, hence its lack of social support. But as Herdy and Conaboy show, maternal instinct is not hardwired. The conflicts of interest mothers experience are acute, and poorer mothers experience them more, as do mothers belonging to socially disadvantaged groups. Children wreak havoc on their chemistry, brains, and bodies, and on their earnings and futures. As for the babies themselves, optimal brain development demands a cacophony of diverse alloparents, cooing and not cooing, in and out of synchrony with the baby's cues. Mitigating maternal damages demands the same. If becoming a mother or an isolated father means flirting with madness, then in part this is because we've evolved to depend on others, to have one eye fixed on the baby with the other on the social horizon. Babies and parents of all stripes need communitarian values, lots of unstructured play, and policies that prioritize the nutritional and atmospheric quality of the soup in which the fetal cells are developed. If we want a cultural reset, then passing around colicky babies, becoming all of us soothers rather than bystanders, might be the place to start. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Mother Knows Best, Insights into Parenthood from Neuroscience, Archaeology, and Social Policy by Michelle Pridmore-Brown from the issue of March 10th, 2023. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. The article you just listened to was narrated by the team at Noah. Continue listening to more great journalism on the NOAA app or by visiting newsoveraudio.com.